Tonight I'd like to pick up a little bit from where Debbie left off in her talk uh, last weekend about the heartwood of the tree, which is freedom from suffering itself, or we might even say liberation or the, the real high attainment of this practice. And I want to explore it in a way that maybe might make it a little bit accessible to us mere worldlings so that we might have a sense that it isn't actually so far away. But maybe there is the revelation of this freedom right here in this moment for us. I want to read this from Kabir, the 15th century Indian mystic and poet. He says, are you looking for me? I am in the next seat. My shoulder is against yours. You will not find me in stupas, not in Indian shrine rooms, nor in synagogues, nor in cathedrals, nor in masses, nor kirtans, nor in legs winding around your own neck nor in eating nothing but vegetables. When you really look for me, you will see me instantly. You will find me in the tiniest house of time. Kabir says, student, tell me what is God? He is the breath inside the breath. So being pointed right back here, always being pointed right back here, to look for that which we are seeking. There are a number of synonyms or words that represent this very esoteric word, nibbana. Nibbana is the Pali word. Nirvana is the Sanskrit word. And different words that we hear are words like the deathless, permanence, peace, the state of being without fear or without danger, the state of being without diseases or health, freedom, emancipation, the shelter, the refuge, the stronghold, the float for people who have fallen into the water, the highest gain, the highest bliss, the further shore, true equanimity. Beautiful words. And it can sound so lofty sometimes when we hear them or, you know, so unattainable. Yet these are words, concepts that are pointing us towards waking up to the present. The present where we can find the deepest truth into who we are and into the nature of this reality, the nature of this existence. But it's like the finger pointing at the moon. You've heard that analogy. If you look at the finger and not the moon, you miss the point. 
we're looking in the wrong place. So we really have to let go of these words. We have to let go of the concepts, which is what we've been doing through our practice over this time. It's letting go of this conceptual mind that wants to figure everything out. And in a way, we need to listen and to feel into something that is more wordless or non-conceptual to begin to sense what these words are actually pointing to. When we can rest back into this presence, this present moment reality, we're asked to then investigate the immediacy of our experience here and now, to see what's true here and now, what can be revealed here. Because when our mind moves into the past and the future and we get caught up and identified with these thoughts and we believe that these thoughts are describing the only reality, then we lose our connection to a liberating wisdom that is here. The Buddha said, do not pursue the past. Do not lose yourself in the future. The past no longer is. The future has not come. Looking deeply at life as it is in the very here and now, the yogi dwells in stability and freedom. So again and again, we're asked to keep our practice very simple. That's what's so beautiful about our practice is that is the simplicity that we're asked again to return back just to one breath, one sensation, one step, one sensation through the sights or sounds, taste, smells, touch. And here's where we will sense the revelation of what's true. This word nibbana, the best translation really is the cessation of suffering or the cessation of dukkha which is the word we translate as suffering. But it's also the cessation of a kind of stress that we experience in life, or simply the unsatisfactory nature of reality, the reality that we find ourselves in. Just unsatisfactory. We can't seem to get any satisfaction. So when we talk about nibbana, literally, if we take the literal translation, it means to become extinguished or to cease blowing. Isn't that lovely? To cease blowing. And linguistically, it's related to the usual extinction of fire or heat. So it's related to something that's burning or hot, fire. And then the absence of that, the extinction of that, or the cessation of that is cool, or it has a cooling effect. In early India, the word Nibbana was used in everyday language. It was just used as like, you need to wait for the rice to become Nibbana. You know, you just wait for the rice to cool down before you eat it. Or Buddhadasa, one of the elders in our tradition, in the Thai forest tradition, says, fierce animals caught from the forest and trained to be tamed like cats, we say we make them nibbana. 
cool them down (laughs) so they're not so fiery, not so feisty. But then the word moved into Dharma language to help describe an experience that is pretty indescribable. You know, what happens within our own being as the as we start to cool down. And it points to the cessation or an ending. And in Dharma language, it means the cooling one attains from the extinction of the heat of the defilements. The defilements being the torments of mind, the greed and the hatred and the confusion that we so often find ourselves in. So as these start to quiet down, and become uh, less powerful in the mind, we start to experience ourselves as more cool or less hot. And I think that these words are actually very useful. They've been very helpful for me because it gives me more of a tangible sense of what to look for in my experience so that I don't get caught up in imagining what the Buddha is pointing to is something so unattainable. We need to look at the Four Noble Truths to really understand what the Buddha was pointing to when he's talking about freedom, when he's talking about Nibbana or liberation, because the Buddha is very, very clear about what we need to be attending to uh, for our practice. So I'll read um, briefly from the um, Samyutta Nikaya, of these definitions of these four truths, so you can hear what comes through in these um, in these in these uh, words. The first noble truth: What is the noble truth of suffering? Birth is suffering, aging is suffering, illness is suffering, death is suffering, union with what is displeasing is suffering, separation from what is pleasing is suffering. Not to get what 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 one wants is suffering. The second noble truth, what is the noble truth of the origin of suffering or the cause of suffering? Craving is the chief root of suffering. It is craving which gives rise to ever-fresh rebirth and bound up with pleasure now here, now there, finds ever-fresh delight. And sometimes reading these words, we really hear kind of there's a tone of this, um, the feeling of the craving itself, where, where we can sense bound up with pleasure, now here, now there, finding ever-fresh delight. Isn't that what the mind does? No. Now here, now there, you know, looking for this delight, this, this momentum of this craving. This is the, the origin of the suffering. And the third noble truth. What is the noble truth of the cessation of suffering? It is the remainderless fading away and cessation of that same craving. The rejecting and relinquishing of it. The freedom from it. Non-reliance on it. How beautiful. Non-reliance on it. We can't rely on that craving to take us to true happiness, to true contentment. 
So the noble truth of the cessation of suffering is it is the remainderless fading away and cessation of that same craving. And then the fourth noble truth, what is the noble truth of the way leading to the cessation of suffering? It is this noble eightfold path, that is to say, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, which is what we're doing here. So the Buddha really lays it out for us. It's so simple. What we have to pay attention to, the arising of that craving, which is tanha in Pali. So to really understand, I want to talk a little bit about this tanha so that we can get some sense of how that actually manifests or what to look for so that we know how to find our way to the end of tanha or to the absence of tanha, which is the cessation of this craving and the the release into freedom. The literal translation for tanha is thirst, as in the result of a drought or a dryness, that kind of thirst when we we need some kind of uh, nourishment because we're drying out. That's the tanha. So it it leads to a kind of a a drivenness or um, a compulsion or an ambition uh, or an addiction that because we we feel we need to have something or we're not going to be okay or fill in the blank, we're not going to be complete, we're not going to be fulfilled or gratified. So that tanha, when we feel it in our body, in our mind, it actually has that energetic quality of of ambition or compulsion. Or another translation I like a lot is the, the fever of unsatisfied desire. The fever, you can hear these, it's very hot. You can hear kind of the burning or the heat in, these, in this kind of uh, uh, description. And when we're sensitive and we're tuned in to our experience, we can begin to feel that, that craving and how the, the heat or the contraction that it actually brings in our body and our mind when we can sense it, when we can feel it. Sometimes the word is for tanha is translated as desire, but I think it's too simplistic and can be potentially too misleading because I found in my practice, and it took me some time to really work this through, this how could desire be bad, all desires be bad, because what happens is it can confuse the fact that there are actually wholesome desires as well. There's really, when the, when the heart and the mind are moving in a way towards something that is wholesome and good, it can have the same feeling of that energetic movement, but it's wholesome. There's no problem in it. There's not really a tanha in it. For example, our loving-kindness meditation, we can have this deep wish for all beings to be happy, for ourselves and all beings to be happy, and we can feel the energy of that wanting. But it's a very heartful, wholesome, good kind of movement in the mind and the heart. So we want to cultivate that. Or our longing, our wish for happiness, our wish for connection with other, with other uh, like-minded beings or loving beings. 
uh, the wish for good things to happen for ourselves and for our loved ones, to be comfortable, to have beautiful things in our life, to have security, to be safe and free from fear and danger, all that we can desire, and those are, those are important desires, ones that we value. And so there's, that's not what we're talking about when we say we have to let go of desire. We're, we're actually talking about the tanha, which has the, 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 the contraction and the grasping and the fever in it, which is why the fever of unsatisfied desire is actually a better kind of translation. So we can think of tanha as a kind of energy or a force in the mind that is propelled outward to an object. You know, I want that object. I want that thing. We know this. I mean, this is so, you know, prevalent here on our retreat. The thing with tanha, though, is it's really bound up with self-interest. It's what's in this for me. You know, what am I going to get out of this? And we're usually not thinking too much about others. We're mostly thinking about ourselves. So the tanha is very, it's kind of what gives us this sense of self. It's all wrapped up in a sense of self. And it propels us, if we follow it, into seeking something or someone to have or to possess that we think is going to bring some kind of com- completion because we, it, it arises out of a belief that we're incomplete or deficient in some way. It, it, uh, it, 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 it feeds upon this view this wrong view of the way things are, that somehow we are insufficient, we are uh, unfulfilled beings. And that's because we haven't looked deeply enough to know what's true about our nature and who we are. We might see this here in the seeking for certain experiences. And that's what happens in the meditator's mind is we think that we have to have certain kind of meditative experiences to feel this fullness or this gratification or this uh, completion rather than looking right here now to see what's true. Looking deeply, really deeply to see what's true without moving, without the mind moving towards any experience or any object, which points to this more independent happiness and independent contentment that can arise within our own mind, within our own heart, within our being. This tanha is supported by and nourished by ignorance, by confusion, by not seeing clearly, because it tells us What's not true, it tells us that we are incomplete in some way. We're deficient. And so this, this tanha actually creates a kind of coloration in the mind. It creates a kind of filter in the mind, uh, almost like there's a veil or a membrane in our consciousness where we can't see clearly. We're seeing through these kind of colored glasses, which distorts our reality, distorts our view. And then we see the world in this uh, distorted way. We can't see what's true. Tanha colors our thoughts, it colors our feelings, it colors our intentions. And, we, and, it, and it conditions this disconnection from a deeper wisdom, a deeper truth. I want to talk about one particular form of tanha that arises for us that I think is particularly destructive 
for us. And I want to talk about it because I think it's really important for us in our practice on our journey just to understand how destructive this particular mind state can be. And it's the mind state that forms around the negative judge. The judge that comes in that tells us that we're doing things wrong, that it's not we're not right, that we're stupid, that we can't do this, we're worthless. That all the 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 ongoing the relentless kind of uh, barrage of negativity that can come through this negative judge. It's one way that the self, the ego self, crystallizes around a sense of self or identity as it can take the form of a critic or kind of a driver, an ambitious driver. I have to do this. I have to get this. I have to understand this. Or some kind of righteous knower. I already know that. You know, I don't need to hear anything more. You know, the way the mind just shuts down because it, it, do, it doesn't want to expand and take in more information. This negative judge, I understand to be an aspect of Mara. Mara, this lord of illusion that wants to keep us in the grip of, of uh, misunderstanding and confusion and ignorance. And when we are identified with this part of our mind, we are actually in the grip of Mara, and Mara has us exactly where he wants us. You stay just the way you are, nice and small and limited and separate and confused and greedy and hateful, and this is what I like. And I'll do anything I can to keep you in this position of a small, separate self. Ha, ha, ha. You know, it's like... (laughs) the evil one. <laughs> and it comes disguised as this, as this negative judge, you know, this judge that's going to tell you the way things are. And it's important to understand that when we're actually doing our work as we are here in the service of awakening, Mara is right here because Mara doesn't want you to awaken. So it's going to do everything it can to keep you here where you are in this confused, uh, deficient location. And the more open and the more soft you become, the easier it is for Mara to come in. Because in a way, as one teacher says, all your doors and windows are open of your house. And anybody can just come in. And so Mara sees this even as a better opportunity to come in and start to trick you and deceive you and say, what do you think you're doing? You think you're so loving, so heartful, you can't do this practice. Or whatever it is, you know, Mara comes in. So not only are we practicing a quality of openness, but we also have to have wisdom the wisdom that sees and the wise discriminating wisdom that can see, I don't think it's so good for that particular aspect of my mind to be walking into my house right now. Because as Mara walks in in this form, it can just, it just, he just wrecks havoc, just undermines our entire practice. So the wisdom actually becomes a form of protection. We protect what's valuable in our house. We protect what's valuable in our being through the wisdom and saying, no, 
that's not okay for that particular aspect to come in. My teacher in India, Papaji, used to say, you're letting the thief in the house. You just, you just open your door and you let the thief walk in, and of course he's going to steal all of your jewels. Don't let him in the door. So it's a really important to work with this particular aspect of mind. For me, in my own practice, this has been the mo- one of the most important aspects to understand and to work with. Because until those, that door is shut so that that judge cannot come in, it's almost like I can't really see what's going on because I'm so continually working with being undermined and, and victimized by that particular aspect of my mind. And it's so painful. It's so denigrating. So the Buddha is very clear in his suttas as well about how to work with this. And I think sometimes people get very confused. They think, oh, I'm just supposed to be open and loving and just see it as a thought and, you know, it'll go away or I'll just let go. Sometimes that just doesn't work. Again, we're way too open. In fact, I think what we really need to do is defend ourselves against against this aspect of our mind. And this is what the Buddha says in one of the discourses on working with these difficult aspects of mind. My other glasses. He says, when this arises, when with his teeth clenched and his tongue pressed against the roof of his mouth, he beats down, constrains and crushes mind with mind. How about that? (laughs) He says, just as a strong man might seize a weaker man by the head and shoulders and beat him down, constrain him and crush him, so too, (laughs) when with his teeth clenched and his tongue pressed against the roof of his mouth, a bhikkhu beats down, constrains and crushes mind with mind. His mind becomes steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness and concentrated. Sometimes people are very surprised (laughs) that the Buddha suggested that as a way of working in our practice. And yet in my own experience, sometimes that's what we have to do. It takes the kind of finding that inner strength and that inner power that comes from our, our, our being and our nature that we are, to actually confront that very strong force of tanha in the mind. It's a tool. It's a way of working. It's a skillful means. Sometimes it may not take that much energy. It might be, as somebody said today, it might be we just kind of, it's like sticking an acupuncture needle in, in, in the right place, and it just pops. The energy just moves. It may not take much energy at all. But yet we need to be discriminating and really defend ourselves against that. Because until we do, I'm not sure we can get to the more tender and gentle places within our own heart to begin to see what's truly there. When that does start uh, start to quiet down, we're really allowed to feel our tender heart. 
And then we may begin to feel the way our ego has formed around certain painful events in our life. We may begin to feel the hurt in the ways we've been betrayed or a deep sense of loss and grief. And we may feel our fears and our mistrust, which in a way is what this, what Mara doesn't want us to feel because when we start to feel that, we are starting to touch something deeper in our being that needs to heal. And as we touch that, we are more likely to be able to access our, our love and our compassion and our tenderness. And as we do that, we begin to bring these qualities forth as a way of meeting what's being touched in our experience. The heal, this is healing. Our healing begins. We are caring for ourselves in a wiser way. We begin to make wiser choices for ourselves as we are more in connection, as we are touching these deeper layers of our being. And as we do this, the love in our heart starts to become stronger and more stable. And we don't get knocked off our ground as easily by the forces in our mind because we're finding a more stable ground in our wisdom nature, in our heart, in our love, in our compassion, which is really what is reliable in our being to begin to touch these qualities that are actually aspects of our nature itself. This process requires so much respect and so much tenderness as we open and as we start to touch what's really true. We confront the truth of who we are and the being that we are. And as the tanha begins to loosen we start to feel some relief from these strong forces of mind. We start to feel the relief. We start to feel the relief of the greed that moves through the mind, of the hatred that moves through the mind. And we start to feel some moments that feel more cool. Or we start to touch a kind of freshness in our mind, in our experience. That is not the tanha. Moments when we're not so bound up by the way the self takes shape in these strong forces of mind. The samadhi that we touch when we sit in longer retreats is a kind of temporary relief from the tanha, from the craving and the the strong force in the mind. And we feel that, that kind of sense of ease and coolness and freshness in ourselves. But we don't need to be in samadhi to really feel this or to know this, to touch this. It's actually quite an ordinary experience. And when we're not paying attention, we can miss these moments, these moments when we are more at rest, when we're not so bound up in a sense of self. If we are caught up in our conditioned mind, in the thinking mind, the mind is usually so focused on resolving problems that even when the one problem starts to feel resolved and starts to cool down, the mind's looking for the next problem. It's like, okay, I got that one done. There must be another one. Or another problem is going to arise really quick, so I have to be on guard. 
And the mind is, is that's what a conditioned mind does. It's always looking for the next problem. It, it resolves problems in, the, in this duality of good and bad and right and wrong and this and that. And then we can't really relax because the next problem or we're in this problem. This is the way our conditioned mind operates. And we miss the revelation of the freedom. We miss the revelation of that coolness, of the ease that's actually there. Sometimes we say, you know, this when, there's, when the mindfulness is present, there's a kind of stopping or a pausing where we're actually in connection with what's true. And sometimes I think of this as the pause that refreshes, you know, like the Coca-Cola commercial, the pause that refreshes. It's a, it's a kind of similar thing. It's actually very refreshing when we just stop for that moment. The other day I was walking through the woods here in the, the back of IMS and the woods here are so similar to the woods that were behind across the street from my house when I was growing up as a little uh, girl and I would spend so much time as a child walking in the woods, the beautiful woods. The only difference was there were more hardwoods and there weren't the um, evergreen trees that are here. I lived in Ohio and I... Had, I loved my woods, and so I was walking in the woods and kind of just sensing, wow, you know, this is like when I was a child. But then the thought arose that that woods isn't there anymore. It's a housing development, and it's gone. There's not a trace of it. And so I could just feel my mind starting to go into the memory of that, and then some of the aversion arising of, like, what happens in the world that it, you know, Things, places like this are destroyed. And you know, I could just sort of feel the arising of that tanha, of that craving for things to be different and otherwise. And because I was attentive, I could just sense and feel how that tanha, that craving, could become this filter over my mind and start to take me away from actually being able to be here in the woods and having the revelation of the joy and the delight that rose for me when I was a child and also that was arising for me as I was walking. And being able to sink into the present moment without the association and without the papancha arising from the past and then just feeling and sinking into the beauty and knowing, yes, everything that arises passes away. Nothing stays the same. And so sinking into that truth more into the revelation of what's true and touching that place of freedom where there's no holding on to anything remaining the same or anything being the same. And knowing that this too will pass. This is from the Buddha. You've heard this before. Thus you shall think of all This fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lantern, a phantom, and a dream. And when we let go and just come into the present in this way, without the overlay of the past and the future and our wants and our desires, this kind of revelation can arise for us, yes, It's really just an illusion like everything, just arising and passing. Where is the substantiality? 
Where is it? This is um, a poem a yogi gave to me on a a month-long retreat at Spirit Rock. There's a lot of uh, beautiful turkey vultures flying in the sky all over the uh, Spirit Rock sky in California. They look like um, beautiful birds, but they're actually vultures. (laughs) In sight of turkey vultures, I, a rock, Notice for the first time the tiniest back legs of a tadpole. Six spiders weave their webs. One catches a large fly. Quiet, indivisible happiness, nothing more. Just that. The mind just opens to the revelation of what's true. And when we really allow ourselves to recognize these times of peacefulness or when the mind opens in this way, the heart opens, through the recognition, this plants a cellular memory of contentment in our being, which then allows for the mind to more easily find its way back, to find its way home. And the more often that we really acknowledge and recognize, yes, this peacefulness, this contentment, it goes deep in the being. So we want to recognize these moments. They're very powerful. In fact, for me, when I was um, 19 years old, I, I, I had my first moment of this kind, and I didn't know it. At the moment, I didn't have the context to really understand what was happening, but it was more like a reflection as I began practice later on, looking back and saying, oh, yeah, something happened there. Very similar to when I think uh, Rebecca talked about the, or maybe somebody here, talked about the Buddha as a child sitting under the rose apple tree and having a deep... Uh, experience of contentment, and he knew the contentment was not dependent on any conditions, but something much, much deeper in his knowing, in his being, in his wisdom. And then later, uh, uh, that was one of the experiences he remembered that uh, supported his awakening. In a similar way, when I was uh, 19, I was in college, and a typical 19-year-old totally caught up in samsara, Uh, incredible pain and suffering, totally confused, uh, not seeing any escape, any way out, and um, thinking that was it. You know, everything was a problem. (laughs) And I remember uh, going home for a holiday, and I was lying on a, 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 a chair in the backyard. The sun was out, and I was just lying there for a moment, and my mind just stopped. And it was like, what's this? <laughs> it's like, oh, some, this is something different that I haven't experienced. And I actually remember reflecting on how peaceful my mind was. And it was actually a break in the suffering. It was a, a recognition that, there, that this moment I'm not suffering. And it actually made me realize that there was something else besides this momentum of suffering. And I was reflecting on that in the moment, just going like, wow, 
this is so peaceful. And, and I wasn't so concerned about what was happening at college and with all my boyfriends and with my grades and my parents and all of that. It was just like, ah, oh, it's okay right now. And, there, and that was a similar kind of direct recognition of a kind of ease that later came back. And I realized that that was one of the first moments where my mind opened, where there was a, like a stopping or a breaking of that, mo- that stream of problems in my life. And I knew, too, that it wasn't just a, a, a conditional well, sense of well-being because I was sitting on this chair in the sun, but it felt much, much deeper than that at the time. So we might take a moment and reflect for yourself when a time or some moments when this tanha dropped away, this craving dropped away. It might have been a pleasant experience. It might even have been a difficult experience where you weren't even needing that to change. A moment in time when you didn't need the situation to be any different than what it was. And just kind of sense into that for a moment. A moment when you were present with the full texture of your experience without judgment, without clinging to your story, without needing for anything to change. Everyone has these moments. And we call these moments, these are moments of momentary freedom. It's momentary freedom where we can taste the, we can smell the perfume of the freedom, of the realization. It's a moment where we are free even though the conditions may come back together in the next moment or some moments later, still there's a revelation of what's possible in that moment. And what are we free from? We're free from the grasping, free from the greed, the hatred, the confusion in that moment. We're free from suffering. We've stepped out of the grasping and the confusion even just for a moment And we want to know these moments because what's left is a moment of peace. Even though it's maybe an outer layer, there may be some confusion and some difficulty there in the middle, but we can feel and sense that layer where we're not caught. We're not completely in the suffering. These moments can bring deep nourishment to our consciousness, to our being. Why? Because in the absence of these obstacles, we come into contact with our essential nature of the awakened mind. This is the nature, this is the feeling, the texture, the the stuff of our awakened mind. It's like an open door to a mind that is naturally peaceful and at ease.
Imagine a cave in the depths of a Himalayan mountain where not even a single sunbeam has ever penetrated for a hundred thousand years. If you go in and switch on a torch, it doesn't matter how long that darkness has lasted, it is dispelled in one instant. This is what happens for us. In just that instant, that darkness is dispelled. This is from a Tibetan Rinpoche. Profound and tranquil, free from complexity, uncompounded, luminous clarity, this is the depth of mind of the awakened ones. In this there is not a thing to be removed, nor is there anything to be added. It is merely the immaculate, looking naturally at itself. Not a thing to be removed, not a thing to be added. This is the absence of tanha, the absence of craving. It is merely the immaculate, looking naturally at itself. So when tanha is absent... It's not that there's nothing there. There's actually something there. But yet the absence of tanha or the cessation of suffering is usually talked about in language of absence. It's talked about like using words like nothingness or voidness or emptiness or the absence of greed, hatred, and delusion And just to point out, until we are fully enlightened, there's always going to be some small identification with a sense of self because there's delusion until very, very high stages of realization. So when we say absence of greed, hatred, and delusion, we're talking about different dimensions of that absence. But it's talked about in absence as if there's nothing, and yet there's something Just as with tanha, the absence of tanha is also an energetic experience, yet it is an energy that is purified. It's a purified energy. It's, It's not colored by the defilements or the torments of greed and hatred and delusion. The Buddha says it like this. He says that it's a mind that is filled with non greed which is the same thing as non-clinging or letting go or renunciation. The mind is filled with non-hatred, which is metta or loving-kindness. The mind is filled with non-delusion, which is wisdom. So in the absence of tanha, the mind is filled with renunciation or letting go, with loving-kindness, with wisdom. That's there. And it's energetic. And from here, we still have impulses or intentions for speech and actions, desires for things. But because our mind is purified, isn't so bound up in these strong forces of mind, these are wholesome impulses that come forth. In Pali, the word is kusaladhamma, or translated as skillful or profitable desires. Or another word is dhammachanda, which is the desire for that which is good or true, the energy for the dharma. You know, it's energy. It's not that there's nothing. 
And this energy has the feel of desire. Because like I was saying, we want all beings to be happy, or we want to alleviate pain in all beings, or for the Buddha, the, the energy to teach the Dharma, to spread the Dharma. But this energy is not bound up in self-interest, like tanha. Not, it's not just about what's in it for me. Rather, there's a genuine desire to benefit, a genuine desire to be in contact with or to help, or to alleviate pain. This energy arises from the goodness or the purity of our heart, of our being. It is a natural movement of the heart and an expression of the awakened mind. This energy arises from wisdom, not ignorance, it arises from, the in- from intelligent reflection, from clear seeing. And since it's not bound up in ignorance, this energy has its own innate wisdom and intelligence. It's not mine. I don't own it. I don't possess it. it has, it's innate in itself. It's connected to a larger whole, not just me. This energy is in sync with the larger whole. It flows naturally and easily from our natural state. It's an energy that's not bound up with a sense of self or or tanha. Therefore, there's so much energy available because it's not contracted. It's not compressed. There's a lot of energy, actually. And when we feel it, it manifests as a good feeling. There's joy. We feel alive. We have a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose. It's the truest joy that arises out of the truest love, the truest compassion. Other examples of this, the manifestations of this energy, is the, are all of the Brahma-Viharas, the, the metta and the, the karuna, the compassion, the joy, the, uh, the mudita, the equanimity. They're all movements of the heart, of this energy, of this pure energy. Or generosity, the movement of heart of generosity, or truthfulness, or, or, or all, this, all of the morality that Rebecca spoke about the paramitas that Rebecca spoke about, the movement of devotional chanting or prayer or music or mantras or dancing, celebration. All of that is an expression of this, of this connection to something deep and true. Our heart and mind naturally turns towards this sweet joy. It naturally moves towards that in our life. It's called Dhamma Chanda, the joy or the energy for the Dharma, the wholesome state of mind that feeds on itself, gains nourishment from its own presence. It takes us deeper and deeper into the experience of the awakened heart. And as this deepens and the Dhammachanda gets stronger, this manifests, manifests as a selfless desire that grows out of love and compassion for all beings. And this is where the bodhisattva attitude arises from. Because when we connect at this very deep level, what we touch into and feel is that I want all of my actions 
to contribute to the welfare and liberation of all beings. There's nothing else that matters. We feel into the power of the potentiality, the capacity of who we are and what's possible on this earth, in this world. And we want nothing more than for awakening to happen at every dimension of reality. From here, our actions arise from a different location of our being altogether. It's not from this conditional idea of what's right and what's wrong or what's good and what's bad. That's just more of an egoic view. But our intentions and our actions arise from something much more dynamic, kind of a dynamic essence of our being itself. This is from my teacher, Hamid Ali, who I've spoken of from the Diamond Heart School. He says, This dynamic essence of one's nature is not an ambitious activity trying to actualize its ideals. Rather, it is a completely non-selfish, dynamic flow of essential nature unfolding naturally and authentically. This is what's possible. This is what's here right now for us. This is a quote from Martin Luther King at the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia, in February 1968. And I want to read this because, for me, this is a pure expression of this bodhisattva vow, of this dynamism that he was connected to. Every now, he says, every now and then I think about my own death. And I think about my own funeral. I don't want a long funeral. And if you get somebody to deliver the eulogy, tell them not to talk too long. Tell them not to mention that I have a Nobel Peace Prize. Tell them not to mention that I have 300 or 400 other awards. I'd like somebody to mention that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. I'd like for somebody to say that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love somebody. Say that I was a drum major for justice. Say that I was a drum major for peace. That I was a drum major for righteousness. And all of the other shallow things will not matter. I won't have any money to leave behind. I won't have the fine and luxurious things of life to leave behind. But I just want to leave a committed life behind. So each and every one of us has, has this potential, potentiality. I think this is what's being pointed to when we talk about the heartwood of the tree of the practice. Not waiting, not postponing, not wanting anything less than the best of what's possible. This is from Martha Graham. There is vitality, a life force, an energy, 
a quickening that is translated through you into life, into action. And because there is only one you in all time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium. The world will not have it. It won't get it. It is not your business to determine how good it is or how valuable nor how it compares with other expressions. It is your business to keep it yours clearly and directly, to keep the channel open. So this is one way of thinking about what we're doing here, whether you're staying, whether you're leaving. It's all the same. It's all the same practice. Looking at the ways, seeing if we can understand the way this tanha is arising in our mind, in our experience, so that we can bring an end to it. Because when we bring an end to it, when it ceases, anything is possible. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.